You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 through 17. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You know, it's bizarre that we live in this democratic republic of the United States, and yet we have this peculiar interest in the idea of kingship. It says something to us that the stories we tell ourselves that captive, captivate our imaginations are filled with kings and heroes. We love the stories of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. We love the the tales of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, as we 
here of Strider, the ranger. He captivates us. This Aragorn in the line of Isildur, who is first king of Gondor. And we long for him to become the new awaited king. Or consider C.S. Lewis and consider the four Pevensey children who are crowned kings and queens of Narnia. But of course, we can deviate from fiction and we can just look at reality and you will still find, even in our own country, this, this obsession, this incredible interest with the pageantry of the British monarchy as millions from all around the world tuned in to watch the late Queen Elizabeth's funeral. It's almost as if our obsession with monarchy points to a ghostly yearning for a king we do not know we need. No wonder then the pages of scripture are filled with the expectation of a king and the arrival of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this promise of kingship climaxes in the Old Testament right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a covenant with David promising a forever dynasty. God says, I will build you a house, David. But before we look more carefully at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we need to understand just how Israel ended up with a king in the first place. That story is an unusual one. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about how Christ was the better Moses, the better prophet. And as we left the end of Deuteronomy, we reminded ourselves that, that, that Israel's still waiting for a prophet who is like Moses. God brought the people out of Israel, of Israel, out of slavery, and he brought them out of Egypt to Sinai. And he made a covenant with his people that, that God would be their God and they would be God's people. And after their initial refusal to enter the promised land, the Lord sends the people back into the wilderness, you remember, right? He sends them back and they wander for 40 years in order for that generation to die out. And as Israel eventually did enter into Canaan, as they crossed the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua, the Lord gave them the land of promise. Israel, like a new Adam, lived in the land under the care and under the rule of the Lord. Yahweh was to be their covenantal king. It's a Garden of Eden 2.0, if you will. So if they were obedient, if Israel would be obedient to their king, obedient to his law, if they would be faithful to the covenant and its commandments, the Lord would bring blessing upon the people of Israel. But if they strayed, if they disobeyed, if they made the same mistake as Adam, then the Lord would bring his curse and his judgment. So it's interesting as we see Joshua come to a conclusion that at this point of the story of Israel, two-thirds of God's covenant with Abraham has now been fulfilled. The people were large in size, and now they were in the land of promise. All that was left for God to do was to bring the blessing to the nations, that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed. Everything's set up for us. The people are large in size. They're in their land. And now through Israel's obedience to their covenantal king, to the Lord, the blessing of God would expand and pour out from Israel to the very ends of the earth. That was the plan. That was the goal. However, it didn't take long 
for the people of Israel to forget their king and to forget his law. The book of Judges, I was talking with Jamie Thomas earlier this morning, is one of the most horrific books in the Bible. As we see the cycle of sin and disobedience of Israel time and time again in some of the most grotesque ways imaginable. And yet we see God's faithfulness time and time again, raising up a judge to deliver the people from their calamity as the foreign nations breathe down their necks. You see, the book of Judges diagnoses what's ultimately wrong with Israel. What is Israel's problem? Why can't they seem to get it straight? Well, the, the problem isn't the Lord, right? He's good and righteous. The problem isn't his law. His law is good and righteous and perfect. What's the problem? They're rebellious hearts. That's the problem. The cycle of judges, time and time again, all throughout that book, shows us that Israel needs a king. Because of Israel's faithlessness, the authority of God needs to be mediated through a human king. And the Lord anticipated this, and he made provision for a king for his people. So this goes all the way back to Genesis. When God first made that promise to Abraham, God told Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. When Jacob blesses his sons, he does so prophetically, indicating that Judah would one day rule. Jacob said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Balaam's final oracle in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In fact, we see that God even makes provision for a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let me invite you to take your Bible, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's read this provision that God made for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother." Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So 
there is this provision that God makes for a king. And by the end of Judges, it becomes very clear that the king is absolutely necessary. Israel's depravity and wickedness become so apparent, so egregious, so horrifying that the ongoing system of the Lord providing judges to deliver the people is untenable. God is a wise and covenantal king for his people, but Israel will not obey. Israel will not be faithful to their God. And so the end of Judges gives the apologetic, the the defense, the, the, the great argument that there needs to be a king. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The opening of 1 Samuel then shows the corruption and sin of Israel that has expanded throughout the entire nation, including Eli and his sons. Israel needed a king. Israel needed a king who could mediate God's authority to his people. And in the book of Samuel, Israel rightly recognizes that they need a king, but they demand a king for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motive. They request a king, not because they want to obey the Lord and fulfill his word and and be faithful to him. No, that's not the reason why. They wouldn't say, God, you know, a king would really help us obey you more. That wasn't their motive. They wanted to be like all the other nations. That's why. Their their desire for a king was not a desire to submit to the Lord, but an actual rejection of the Lord as king. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll be jumping around a little bit in these books. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. Let's read these events in Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Sometimes the most fearful judgment of God comes by giving us what we want. Israel wanted a king, and so God gave them a king. They rejected the Lord, and so God gives them a king. Now, the covenantal blessings of Israel that we've been talking about are tied to their obedience to his word. So the the precarious, the, the warning of a king for Israel is that now their obedience not only brings blessing, but now it's tethered to their king's obedience to his law. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 17, that's why the king has to write the law and submit to the law and keep it before him because if he goes astray, the whole nation will go astray in disobedience. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 
13 through 15. At the end of his life, Saul Samuel reminds the people of this blessing, this covenantal blessing that comes from obedience to God and the consequences of disobedience. So this is 1 Samuel 12, look at verse 13 through 15. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So now Israel's future is connected to their king. A faithful king, a godly king will lead them into blessing as they submit to God's law and God's word. But a king who leads them astray will bring judgment. So Saul was the first king of Israel. And now with Saul as king, Samuel's word of warning almost becomes immediately relevant. Saul makes a presumptuous and unlawful sacrifice in clear violation of God's law and command. And before long, the reign of Saul spirals into constant trouble for Israel. The Lord rejects Saul as king. And Samuel is sent to anoint a new king, David, the son of Jesse. So throughout the narrative of Samuel, David is presented in this heroic way, particularly in 1 Samuel, even in the opening of 2 Samuel. He's a courageous warrior. He's a righteous man who loves God's word. He's a man of conviction. He is indeed the man after God's own heart. So when Saul dies, David ascends to the throne. And as we read Samuel, we come to the opening of 2 Samuel with almost great excitement and anticipation at this point, as we've been following the fall of Saul's reign, and as we've watched David ascend into the monarchy, there's, there's this excitement and anticipation that the reader, that we ought to ask, where we think, is this it? Is this the man? Is this the king that Israel needs who will lead them into faithfulness? Will God's promise to Abraham now be fulfilled as through this king, the whole world will be blessed through the reign of Judah's son, David? Is it coming? And so the Lord brings in the opening years of David, this golden age for the people of God. They're united together working together. And, the, and through David's reign, there's blessing that's coming upon the people as David leads them to be faithful to their God. And all of those expectations, all of that excitement, all of that yearning finds its climax in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me invite you to return there if you're not there already. And here it is in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord gives a remarkable promise to David. During this time of prosperity and peace, David begins to desire to build a permanent temple for the Lord. Ever since Egypt, the Lord has lived in his tabernacle, right? He's had his tent, and that tent marked God's presence among his people. And David had built this grand palace for himself, and he longed to do the same for his God, to build a temple for the Lord, and so David consults with the prophet Nathan. He runs the idea. Nathan, what do you think about this? I want to build a temple for the Lord. And initially, Nathan's like, well, that sounds like a great idea, right? Let's do it. 
and he expresses support for David's dream. However, that very night, the Lord appears to Nathan and shows to Nathan and gives Nathan a prophetic word to give to David. And after receiving this word, Nathan goes and he tells the king what the Lord told him. And what did the Lord say? He said, David, I don't need a house. (laughs) I don't need a house. David, I don't need you to build me a house. Instead, David, I'm going to build you a house. The Lord reminds David of his humble beginnings, how he took him from the, the pasture to the palace how God had made David the shepherd king of Israel. And with the call of God, David left behind those wooly sheep for the more stubborn flock of Israel. And by his power, by God's power, God brought peace to his people through David's reign. The the presence of God had gone with David and all that he did, every foe that challenged him was defeated by God's power and God's strength. The reign of David ceased the the violent and unstable time of the judges. A new era has dawned. God has brought stability through his king. And God promises to give David a long life and a prosperous reign. However, he clarifies that he will also build David a house, that being a dynasty. Look at verse 12 and through 14 of 2 Samuel 7. Lord says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now the prophetic promise here refers immediately to Solomon. It's a promise that that God will not cut off David's family line like he did with Saul. So Solomon would come and he would reign after David's death. And David's hope to build a house for the Lord would come to pass, but would come through his son, through Solomon, who would build the temple. So the Lord ensures, he promises David here, that I will care for Solomon as a father to a son. I will discipline Solomon when necessary never forsaking him as I did with the kingship of Saul. Now, the future promise of this passage, though, rests on verse 16. Look at verse 16 in the text. And your house, the Lord says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's the great wow of the promise. The promise isn't only, hey, your son is going to reign after you, but the promise here is that David's house will endure forever. It will be lasting. The Lord will do it. He will see the promise of this eternal reign of David's dynasty, that the house of David will not fade away. The Lord will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. What a tremendous promise this is. And upon receiving this wonderful promise from the Lord, David responds with incredible, almost speechless gratitude. He's overwhelmed at God's blessing upon his life, that God would be so kind to do this for him. And David understands that as God blesses the king, so too will Israel, God's people be blessed. And not just Israel, but the whole world would be blessed through David's dynasty. And so David responds, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 26. David responds in joyous praise at this news. Look at what he says, verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, 
The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. At the covenant that God has made here with David in 2 Samuel 7, at this point, as we're reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, we, we expect David's dynasty to usher in God's rule and authority in the earth and worldwide blessing. Here is the one, we think. Here is the one who would be born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Here is the son of Abraham. Here is the king of Judah. And for the next few chapters in 2 Samuel, we, we almost think that it's starting to happen. We see the Lord bless David's reign as his righteous king. And the hope we have in David to, to usher in God's blessing for not just Israel, but for the world, it comes to a smacking halt in 2 Samuel chapter 11 in David's conniving and murderous cover-up of his adultery with Bathsheba. And though David humbles himself and he repents after the prophet Nathan confronts him, this puts a black stain on David's reign and the consequences of which unleash national instability and contributes to the rebellion of his son, Absalom. David was Israel's greatest king. We're left at the end of 2 Samuel 7 thinking it's, it's happening, but his reign ends with unfulfilled expectations. David fails. And yet the summary argument of 1 and 2 Samuel, indeed the thesis of the book, is in God's good provision of a king. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Go to the very end. These are David's final words, which aren't actually his final words in Samuel, which shows us that the, that the writer of the book is pointing to the significance of these words in 2 Samuel chapter 23 as the thesis of the book. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 through 5. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For, he, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things, and secure. You see, a good king, a righteous king, is a beam of light on a cloudless morning. A king who rules in the fear of the Lord and who rules in obedience to God's word will bring be a blessing like, like rain upon the grass, causing all under the rain to flourish and to grow. And it is through David's house that God has made a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant to bring this blessing of this king to the world. And so as we get to the end of Samuel, the expectation of this promise is not realized in David's reign. Though we see the possibility, well, if David couldn't do it, perhaps his son, perhaps Solomon will be the one who accomplishes this worldwide blessing through his rule. Solomon was the wisest of kings. He brought unrivaled wealth and prosperity to the nation of Israel. He built a temple to the Lord and expanded Israel's influence among the nations. 
But Solomon's love for foreign women led his heart astray. Not because they were foreign, but because they were pagans. Because of the influence of idolatry and sin and worshiping false gods. And it's the strange, sad, tragic irony of Solomon's reign. Instead of influencing the nations to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, the nations influenced Solomon to idolatry. 1 Kings 11, chapter 6, gives us this, uh, verse 6, gives us this stunning analysis of Solomon's reign. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Solomon's not it. He doesn't do it. In fact, he's worse off than David. Why is that? Well, while David, of course, sinned, he did not lead the people into idolatry like Solomon did. Thus begins the decline of Israel's monarchy. After Solomon, the nation is divided in two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And though there are some bright spots along the way of the Davidic line, such as Hezekiah or Josiah and the kings, the overall pattern is quite clear. Steady decline, idolatry, and ultimately God's judgment. The northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom of Judah survives a little bit longer by God's intervention, but eventually they too are destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians and they are carted off into exile. The monarchy fails. And it's at this point, all of God's promises for his people Israel that he had first made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, all of them seem to be in jeopardy now. How's this going to be fixed the judgment of God has come. The curse has come because of their disobedience. And now the people weren't large, but they're small. And now they're not in the promised land, but they're scattered across the world. And now there is no king to lead the people to blessing. All of it has fallen apart. The Lord exiled them from the promised land. And the dynasty of David is now dethroned. What will the Lord do? And the Lord would eventually bring his people back into the land after 70 years in captivity. But the people returned as subjects to a foreign empire. And the rebuilding efforts paled in comparison to Israel's glory in those golden years. The Old Testament ends with these unfulfilled dreams, these unrealized promises. But we know that the Lord was at work in a way that Israel would have never expected. Though Israel was unfaithful to the covenant, even though they disobeyed, even though they failed to keep up their end of this covenantal agreement and promise, God would nevertheless be faithful. He would be gracious. He would bring blessing. He indeed would fulfill every promise he had made to Abraham, every promise he had made to Israel. He would restore David's dynasty and he would establish it forever but he would do so in a way that nobody expected him to do. And so the prophets began to deliver the word of the Lord, the Messiah, that there would be a new king who would come, one who was like David, a better David, if you will, who would come and deliver Israel and restore the kingdom once and for all. The prophets began to anticipate it and herald this promise of a Messiah, of a king, of a Christ, of an anointed one. Throughout the Old Testament, we are reminded that God's covenant, his law, his plans, his promises, they're all good. 
They're all good. Israel needed a king. Yes, they did. But the danger of the king is that the king could lead the people astray. And throughout the history of Israel's kings, we see the kings do just that. They refused to submit themselves to God's law, and they led to decline and idolatry and rebellion and ultimately destruction. You see, the chief problem of humanity that we see demonstrated time and time again in Israel's history, same problem you and I have, it's our sin. We have sinful hearts. Why didn't the nation work without a king during the time of the judges? Why, why didn't they want God to be their king? Well, because the sinful people rebelled against God and they refused to submit to his word. Well, well why didn't the, the nation work with a king when, when they had David and his line? Well, the same problem is displayed, not just in Israel, but in the kings themselves. The kings were sinful. The kings had the same proclivity you and I do to be rebellious against God's authority and law. You see, the fundamental problem is our sinfulness. And you can create the Garden of Eden 2.0 with a better David ruling in the promised land. But yet, the problem still occurs. We still stray. We still disobey. We still eat of what we ought not to eat. We reject God and his authority. The monarchy didn't work because the monarchs were sinners. We sinners need a king, we do, who can mediate God's authority to us, but a sinful king actually compounds our problem. It multiplies it, if you will. And so God promises a king to come, a king, a son of David who will forever sit on the throne. And in God's sovereign wisdom, he fulfills his promise to David by sending his own son to be the king we need. Jesus is the promised king who by his righteous rule will bring blessings to the earth. Jesus is born of the lineage of David. He's born in the town of David, a little town called Bethlehem. And as the prophet Micah predicted, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is the son of David who would fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the angel Gabriel makes this absolutely explicit in her announcement to, and his announcement to Mary in, in the gospel of Luke. So turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 33 33. Luke chapter 1. Notice how, how Gabriel just so clearly connects this birth announcement of Jesus to the promises of 2 Samuel 7. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the better David. He is the righteous branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. He is the child promised to be born whose government of peace will be no end. 
Jesus is not just a king, he is the king. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the king without sin. He is the king who perfectly obeys God's law. He is the king who is wholeheartedly devoted to his father's glory. And he is the king who shepherds his people into righteousness and holiness. Unlike Solomon, Jesus' heart cannot be led astray nor will he lead God's people into error. Christ is the righteous ruler, the perfect king. He is the dew on the ground. He is the shining light on a cloudless morning. God's covenant with David is fulfilled with the arrival of one king, King Jesus. However, Jesus was the king that nobody expected. His own people did not recognize him. They missed him. He did not come and a political revolution or a military might. He was, he was poor. He was humble. He was homeless. And he came to preach the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at his hand. And the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the king has come. <laughs> the king has come. The kingdom comes with the king. And the king has come, though the world did not recognize him. He was in the world, John writes, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And even though no one recognized Jesus' identity as the king, Jesus spoke with kingly authority, absolute authority, and yet the world killed God's king. Jesus hung upon the cross, rejected and despised, but yet Jesus is the wise king who brings the people into righteousness, who brings God's blessing. He would resist every temptation. He would perfectly obey the law of God. He would show us the way to the Father. But God dealt definitively with our fundamental problem through the death of the king. Jesus dies for our trespasses. Jesus dies to satisfy the demands of God's wrath and justice. He dies to rescue his subjects from the tyranny of sin. David had his share of military victories over the Philistines, but he could not conquer Israel's greatest foe, their own sinful hearts. David couldn't even conquer that in himself. But Jesus is the warrior king, courageous enough to do battle against sin. And Jesus' great victory over sin demanded his death. To win the fight, Jesus must lose his life. And the king came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Jesus lays down his life for us, he liberates sinners like us to be citizens of his kingdom, that all who would turn away from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved from their condemnation and be made citizens of heaven. The curse is gone. The blessing now comes through Jesus. The good news of Jesus, the king, is that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. Why is Jesus the forever king? Why is he the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7? Well, Jesus is the forever king because he's the resurrected king. A monarch ceases to be king at death. So ask Queen Elizabeth. But a resurrected king is king forever. 
And so does Jesus have all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. And so he has been given a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He is the king, the Christ who has come that we remember during this Christmas season is the king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He will come to judge the living and the dead. God has made him king over his people through his son. And Jesus is the God-man who mediates God's authority and rules over us, rules over the world. One of the most important questions you must ask today is this. If Jesus is God's king, will I submit to his rule? If Jesus is the king, if he's God's king, will I submit to his rule? Will I follow him into righteousness? Will I make him Lord and God of my life? Will I find my life in Jesus? Will I see myself first and foremost as a citizen of heaven, as a subject of King Jesus, as servant of God most high? You see, to be a Christian is to recognize Jesus as the king. It means to be a Christian. You see and you understand by the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you see that Jesus is the mighty warrior who has laid down his life to save you from your sin. And that because of his great love, you humble yourself before him and you repent of your sins and you look to Jesus with the eye of faith and you say, Jesus, I, I want to gladly and joyously to submit my life to you. You are the good king. You are the benevolent ruler. You are wonderful. And I submit myself to you. I pledge my allegiance to you. I give my life for you. The, the local church then is the gathering of kingdom citizens who commit to jointly living under the rule of Christ. That's what we're doing here. That's what a church is. It means we've recognized that Jesus is the king, that we are citizens of his kingdom, and it means that Jesus is king of our lives, and we do what he says, and we submit to him, and we advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the local church does. The, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that is now here. And in this covenant community, in Redemption Church, there is only one king. It's not me. It's not the elders. It's certainly not you, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is the king. And if you claim to be a Christian, do you obey your king? You do what he says. Or are you living in rebellion against his authority and against his word? The kingdom of God, friends, isn't a democracy. It's a monarchy. And as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we can look around us and we can see the world needs a king. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no king. We need a king. We need a righteous king, not just any king, the king of kings. We live in a, a world where there are wars and rumors of wars. We live in a country filled with division and corruption where men and women of power use it to victimize others and spread unrighteousness throughout the earth. This fallen world reminds us that we need a king. No human government, no political party, no democracy can avoid the taint of sin. At Christmas time, we are reminded that our hope isn't in the institutions of man, a president or a Congress 
but in the return of God's righteous King, the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we remember that the King who has come will one day come again. A king who arrived on that first Christmas morning will return at the end of the age, bringing his rule, his authority to establish his benevolent monarchy on the earth for eternity. And on that day, will you be found as a citizen of that kingdom or in rebellion against it? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are our king. Lord, help us to see your rule not as cumbersome or taxing or demanding, but Lord, help us to recognize your authority over us as good and wonderful and precious. Lord, may we submit to your rule with gladness. May we devour your word with with hearts that long to obey what you have to say. Lord Jesus, we confess that like Israel, we have each gone our own way. We have all rebelled. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. Lord, even the best of us human beings like David, falls short in horrific and horrible ways. Lord, the king that we need is Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up the eyes of those who are here, that they might recognize and see the good news that Christ is king. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Jesus this morning, Lord, that you would open up their eyes to see his his rule is good and wonderful. And Lord, that they would repent of their sin this day and put their faith in Jesus Christ, submitting themselves to the king, and so finding life and life abundantly in him. Lord Jesus, we pray that as your people, you would help us to be marked by a joyful obedience, a submission to your rule over our lives. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to advance the cause of King Jesus all around the world as we herald the good news of the gospel to the nations. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.